Well, thank you everyone for uh, doing me the honour of coming along tonight. Uh, uh, can I acknowledge we're meeting on traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people and pay respects to elders past and present and to acknowledge any Indigenous people present in the room. Uh, the notion that we may, in this uh, term, have an Indigenous voice to Parliament is something that's enormously exciting to me and I think will be uh, something which is very much about uh, uh, pursuing that fair game notion for Australia. I thought what I might do tonight is to uh, say a few words, tell a few stories and then open things up for a bit of a conversation. Uh, so, uh, so there'll be plenty of time for, uh, for questions, we'll have a, have a, roving, a roving mic uh, and uh, we can dive into issues in the book and even issues outside the book if you'd like to. In 1962, a bloke called Keith Lee uh, turned 50 and he decided that the way to celebrate his 50th birthday uh, would be to go and see his mum. Uh, Keith was a Methodist minister in Rosanna and his mum was at a nursing home in uh, Mount Dandenong. It was about a 25-mile run and Keith figured that that would work out just perfectly. Uh, he ran there, had a cup of tea with his mum, a couple of scones, and then ran back and as a result was able to say that on his 50th birthday he'd run 50 miles. Uh, I, as his grandson, uh, have uh, uh, long admired this legacy and looked for ways of getting out of it, uh, finding none. I turned 50 a couple of months ago and uh, decided to celebrate uh, by doing the Canberra 100k trail run. Uh, and so uh, long distance running madness runs in the Lee family. Uh, I've always admired that Melbourne tradition of uh, uh, combining a love of sport with a love of larks, with a sense of kindness. If you go to Melbourne Olympic Park, you see a statue to John Landy. Uh, it's not a statue to the bloke who was the fastest mile runner. Well, of course he was. It's a statue to that moment where Ron Clark falls in a mile race in 1956. And John Landy, having clipped his heel, turns back to check that he's okay. And by the time Ron Clark has said, yes, yes, go, run, run, uh, Landy is a full 30 metres behind the pack. To fall that race, they've only got a lap and a half to go. And in that final lap and a half, Landy makes it up to the winners and goes ahead to win by 10 yards. It's a remarkable story because he wins the race. But what makes it truly extraordinary is that he exhibits that sense of kindness at the same time. Melbourne is also the place at which Nicky Vinmar decided that he wouldn't put up with the taunts from the opposing fans. And in 1993, we'd go out there and play the hardest game of footy he could. And then at the end, when the ta racist taunts of the opposing fans were coming through, we'd pull up his uh, Guernsey and show his skin and say, I'm black and I'm proud to be black. Sport can so often inspire. It can tell us how we, can, we as humans can be just a little kinder, a little more gen generous. Sport often sparks movements of racial justice. Now, of course, sport's not perfect, far from it. Uh, but if you look at Australia's sporting success, I think it does stand in stark contrast with where some of our economic and social indicators put us. 
Australia came sixth on the Tokyo medal ladder, well above where our economic or our population ranking would have us scoring. Uh, when the last Commonwealth Games were held, we easily topped the medal tally. Australians have uh, taken home records from sport uh, in everything from canoeing to cycling, just to choose one random letter of the alphabet. And sport is deeply ingrained in the Australian public consciousness. Part of the reason for that is we have pretty conducive climate in which to play sport. Uh, Perth and Brisbane have almost twice as many hours of sunlight per year than Paris or Berlin. So it's not surprising that we're outdoors a little more often. We don't have the scorching heat of Africa or the driving snows of Canada. Uh, and so that means that it is an easy country in which to play sport. And in that sense, the bronze Aussie has remained a part of the Australian national story, even as waistlines have widened and inactivity has grown a little. Again, we're perhaps sportier in the ideal than in the reality. Uh, but when you look at our sporting performance, it's hard not to think that we could take a leaf out of the book of sport when it comes to Australia's levels of economic dynamism. Australia, over the last couple of decades, has seen a decline in the start-up rate, a decline in the share of Australians start doing a new job. We've seen an increase in market concentration and an increase in markups. In Australian schools, Test scores on the OECD's PISA tests have gone backwards. Not just slipped a little bit, but slipped a lot. The OECD comes to test our kids when they're in year nine. Uh, we're now to the stage where the typical year eight kid in 2000 would have scored as well as the typical year nine kid today. We've seen a big rise in inequality over recent decades, with wages running, ri rising much faster uh, in the corner office than on the factory floor. And on many markers of the strength of community, society isn't in a good way. Volunteering is down. Joining is down. Participating is down. Australians, uh, Australia is increasingly less of a country of we and more of a country of me. Tonight I want to draw out seven big lessons that I think sport can teach us uh, about a fairer society and a stronger economy. Innovation, competition, fair pay, education, participation, gender equity and racial equity. So let's start with innovation. When Dick Fosbury took to the high jump, he completely transformed the sport. Uh, a sport which had previously been uh, undertaken by approaching the bar sideways and flipping your legs over, suddenly deter you know, gained a new term. The Fosbury flop was what won Dick Fosbury his gold medal and then transformed the sport. When Ned Trickett on the Parramatta River used a sliding seat in a rowboat for the first time, he not only took the world championship but also changed the way in which rowing was done forever. And when Australia too managed to wrestled the America's Cup away using a winged keel. We showed how innovation was able to transform sports.
And yet in many workplaces today, we have increasingly stagnant productivity, a lack of dynamism partly driven by a lack of new innovation. Part of the problem is that for many of us, our jobs have effectively turned us into what Cal Newport calls human network routers, in which our job is to flick emails from one person to another day to day. Cal argues that we need the kind of revolution in office work which characterised the, the Fordist revolution on the factory floor. That we've got to rethink work as radically as Dick Fosbury rethought high jumping. And that only then are we going to get the big kick up in productivity uh, that will continue to drive living standards. On the sporting field, we prize fair competition. We love the idea that last year's wooden spooners could be this year's grand finalists. We enjoy the notion that sport provides what's called the economists call competitive balance. A good sporting contest is one where when the game starts, you can't be completely sure who's going to win. A bad sporting contest is like English Premier League a couple of years ago, in which Manchester United were headed for their 10th victory in a row. And approximately half of all Premier League fans in the UK were Manchester United fans. What does uh, the Australian economy look like? Well, one way of thinking about that is to imagine what would happen if a stock trading Rip Van Winkle had gone to sleep in 1985 and woken up today. If they were in America, then they wouldn't recognise the top of the American stock market. The giants atop the American stock market in 1985 are no longer there today. The five big companies are new companies, like Meta and Alphabet and Tesla. They just weren't there three decades ago. And yet if you look at the Australian stock market in 1985, you see that the top five players, Westpac, CBA, NAB, BHP and ANZ. Today, if you look at the top of the Australian stock market, Westpac, CBA, NAB, BHP and now CSL instead of ANZ. If you imagine your favourite sporting code had seen the same handful of teams topping the ladder for nearly four decades, that would be a very boring competition to watch. We need a little bit more innovation, a little bit more dynamism. I'm delighted to have Graham Samuel here tonight, uh, who has thought longer and deeper about competition reform uh, than most, pe most people will uh, in their lifetimes. And he knows, as I think many Australians instinctively do, uh, that a dose of healthy competition uh, can make an economy work well, just as it makes a sporting code work well. And then there's the issue of looking after the players. In, in the early part of the 20th century, a group of players who'd been playing rugby union decided they had to split away from their code. The norm then for rugby union was that it was a gentleman's game. Strictly for amateurs. And if you got injured, well, hard luck. You had to find that money yourself. That was okay for those with affluent parents or for those who had a landed estate to fall back on. But it wasn't much good if you were a boilermaker or a welder, uh, if you were a local carpenter or a brickies labourer. And so in 1907, 
a group of rugby, former rugby union players uh, got together in uh, Cricket Evicted Trumpers sporting shop and decided to form a breakaway league, a rugby league, which would be grounded on the notion that players would get their fair share of the gate takings. Within a couple of decades, rugby league was outstripping rugby union and remains the dominant code in Queensland and New South Wales. It reflects the fact that sports can thrive when they ensure that those who are on the field get a fair share of the total revenue. And that's a notion that I think far-sighted businesses intuitively appreciate. A myopic business thinks that it can have badly paid workers and highly paid customers. A foresighted business recognises that workers and customers are ultimately the same people and that appropriate pay ensures that people are able to buy their products. The movement towards annual leave, towards penalty rates, was grounded in this notion. But one of the ideas that I tease a little in fair game is the notion that we haven't uh, had a, uh, another movement on working hours for the better part of five decades now. And that perhaps we ought to have a look at other countries which have moved towards longer periods of annual leave and ensure that not only do we have fair remuneration for players, but also a fair amount of time off. Just imagine how much more sport Australians could play if we had five or six weeks of annual leave. And then there's coaching. Uh, when I think of Melbourne and coaches, my mind naturally turns to Percy Serity, Herb Elliott's coach who trained on the Sandhills uh, down round Portsea and trained those gut-busting sessions in which his charges would run up and run down and then be treated to Percy's unusual philosophy on life uh, and exotic diet tips. Uh, they'd go out for hard swims in the ocean in the morning and that, those training sessions ensured that Herb Elliott was one of the great runners in the world. That intensity that Herb Elliott brought to his training uh, can be seen in the accounts that so many Australian athletes tell of their favourite coach. Uh, I tell in Fair Game the story of skier Alyssa Camplin when she was originally a runner. She was out doing sprints on the track. Her coach had charged her to do ten sprints but she was feeling a bit tired so she only did eight. He asked her afterwards, so how were the last two reps? Were they tough? And she said, oh yeah, they were really tough. She said, well, he said, um, I know you didn't do the last two reps and you're only cheating yourself. Alyssa said she learned a valuable lesson from that and it was that toughness which led her to go on and to become one of Australia's champion skiers. A great coach knows when to be firm and knows when to provide the love and caring environment that their charges need. When I was a race walker as a kid, I trained with a coach called Yvonne Moline, uh, who was always there, no matter how dark or wet or rainy or horrible the weather. You knew Yvonne would be there, and so you came along as well. Uh, I've, as an adult athlete, enjoyed working with <coughs> Dick Telford, uh, Rob DeCostello, Ben Gathercole, uh, people who've uh, help me work sport into my life. And yet when it comes to education, 
I'm not sure we always do the, the best job of ensuring that the most vulnerable Australians get great teachers, get the coaches that they need for the soft skills and for the educational lessons that will set them up for a great life. We have a tendency in Australia to, to, to have a system where teachers often end up teaching the most disadvantaged students at the start of their career and the most advantaged students at the end of their career. We haven't prioritised teacher quality in the way in which we should and we're losing too many great teachers to other professions. We're failing to attract some of the talented people who would make great teachers. So the more that we can bring terrific people into the education system, the more we can keep them there and the more that we can put them in front of the kids that really need a great teacher, the more that we will start to have a society and an economy that takes a lesson from the very best of sport. And then there's the issue of participation. I've long thought that exercise should be for everyone. It's not something which ought to be reserved for those who think they're going to make the Olympic squad. There's a true pleasure in, uh, in cycling. I remember once going out for an early morning ride with a group of Canberra, Canberra cyclists on one of those summer mornings where T-shirt and shorts are enough. And as we crested a hill and saw the sun rising in front of us, the bloke next to me turned around and said, mate, I wouldn't be dead for quids. <laughs> and it sums up that sheer beauty of participating. There's a lovely uh, uh, line from uh, uh, one of the Japanese runners where he says that as you get older, the goal is not to uh, beat the fit young things who are out there in the race with you, but just to take pleasure from the fact that you're in the same run as them, that you're getting to run shoulders alongside those who are just out of their teens. And increasingly, as I move into uh, being a, uh, a veteran athlete, uh, that's the philosophy that I try to take. Uh, the joy of my injuries having held off just enough so that I can at least be on the starting, uh, starting line. And that's the philosophy that I think we ought to take to participation in the labour market. I get really worried when people, whether they're progressive activists or Silicon Valley billionaires, start arguing we need a universal basic income. That we should give up on work and simply have a payment for people for whom the economy hasn't provided. Because we know that work provides that sense of meaning and dignity. We know it's a source of identity for so many people. I represent a party that has Labor in its name uh, because it respected that value that work brings. As the economy shifts, there's invariably shifts in the occupational uh, distribution. But I think it always ought to be the job of government to think, how do we ensure that we've got jobs for everyone? And speaking to you tonight with unemployment at among the lowest level that it's been in the last half century, I think we have that chance to ensure that work is for everyone in the same way as which athletic and sporting participation should be for everyone. And then there's the role that sport has played in boosting gender equity. When Billie Jean King won the US Open in 1972, she was paid a fraction of what the, man, the, the world's best man was paid for winning that tournament. And so she told the organisers, 
she wasn't coming back the next year unless they equalised the player pool. And they did. And Billie Jean King came back again and again. Not all sports got the message immediately. Not all tournaments got the message immediately. Wimbledon didn't equalise player payments till 2007. Uh, but increasingly, sports are recognising the importance of gender equity. Uh, hockey, for example, pays and treats its male and female squads exactly the same. The Australian Olympics, uh, the, sorry, the Tokyo Olympics, the Australian squad uh, was majority women. Uh, and uh, women brought home a significant share of the medals. And yet, if you look at the Australian corporate landscape, women currently make up just 6% of ASX 300 CEOs. There are more big Australian companies run by blokes called John than there are run by women. Sport isn't perfect in its treatment of gender, but many of the pioneering movements have been kicked off by sport. And some of the extraordinary athletic achievements uh, have been pioneered by women. Uh, women's marathon swimming, women's, women's cycling, endurance running uh, have been sports in which women are competitive with men. And these are areas in which I think there's great potential for society to learn more from sport to make the most of the talents of the 51% of the population who are women. And finally, racial equity. In 1968, on the Olympic dais, alongside Tommy Smith and John Carlos, stood an Australian 200-metre sprinter called Peter Norman. Smith and Carlos held aloft their fists in a black power salute that would see them mistreated by their fellow, fellow country folk and by the US Olympic Committee. Peter Norman wore with them uh, an Olympic project for human rights badge. Uh, it was Peter's idea when they realised that they only had one pair of gloves, uh, that Smith and Carlos should wear one glove apiece and so they could each hold a fist in the air. When he came back to Australia, uh, he, uh, he was a, a, um, a well-known Seventh-day Adventist. Uh, that didn't stop my grandfather, the aforementioned Keith Lee, for inviting him to speak at Rosanna Methodist. Uh, my grandfather was pretty excited by the achievements of a 200-metre uh, runner, running a time which still today stands as the Australian 200-metre record. But he was also really interested about the way in which a sportsperson could change the debate over racial equality. Colin Kaepernick's stance of taking a knee uh, sent ripples through sport not only in the United States but also worldwide. I mentioned Nikki Enmar before. Sport has so often been a way in which the conversation over racial equity uh, has begun. Again, sport's not perfect. But just imagine how much more effectively Australian workplaces could use the talents of their workers uh, if they were more equal and if they understood the role that uh, implicit bias can play. When I was at the Australian National University, Alison Booth, Elena Varganova and I uh, did an experiment where we sent out 5,000 fake CVs, changing just the name on the top of them uh, and uh, seeing what the callback rate was 
for names that designated particular ethnicities. We found that while having an Italian-Australian name didn't much affect your callback compared to an Anglo name, the callback rate was significantly lower for having an Indigenous name, a Middle Eastern name or a Chinese name. Uh, that level of racial bias uh, is something that we need to constantly be measuring, assessing and trying to reduce. Because we know the benefits of diversity uh, can be powerful within the workplace. Sporting teams see this too. More diverse teams are more effective, uh, just as more diverse corporations and cities can be more effective too. And so, again, taking a lesson from sport can make society and the economy work better. Ultimately, for me, the big lesson from sport is that life isn't a choice between fairness and excellence. Economists in the room will be familiar with that old uh, equity efficiency trade-off. The idea that in some cases you have to choose between growth and fairness. It's true. There's moments in which we do have to make that choice. But the, the message of fair game is that there's many opportunities in Australian life where we don't have to make that choice. Where we can make life a little fairer and boost innovation. Where we can be a stronger country and a fairer one too. Thanks again for coming along tonight. Thank you uh, either in, uh, in retrospect or in advance for buying the book uh, and very much look forward to your questions tonight.